John. It's the fifth book of the Bible. The word deuter uh, means second time in, in, uh, in its root language. And so much of what we cover here in Deuteronomy, it, we're covering it for the second time. And the reason is that there is a new generation of Israelites who have risen up. This is a generation, the children of the generation that passed away in the wilderness. This is a generation that's going to head into the promised land. They were too young, under 20 at least, if not much younger than that, when, when Moses first gave them the law of the Lord. It was something that their parents would have been able to take in and absorb. It's not like they went home with their own copies. It was all auditory, and, and that's the way that they learned. But probably not so much the kids. And so that's mostly what gets repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, is the law of the Lord. Now, there's some who say, well, why study the book of Deuteronomy if it's the law the first or the second time, and we already covered it in Exodus and Leviticus, and, uh, or part of Exodus and Leviticus, and then Numbers as well. Why not just skip Deuteronomy? We've all heard it. We have our own copy. We can read it. And that's a, that's a great question to ask. The, the short answer is this. The reason we study the book of Deuteronomy together is we're committed to studying the Bible, uh, the Word of God, and Deuteronomy is in the Bible. But, but even more than that, the book of Deuteronomy in the New Testament gets quoted from over 80 times. You know how many times that means? That means 81, right? So if somebody says, hey, this is on sale for, for under $100, it means $99.99. So if you hear me say, oh, over 80 times Deuteronomy is quoted in the New Testament, I really mean 81. Maybe I should just say that next time. So 81 times in the New Testament, um, Deuteronomy is quoted from. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book. Now, I find that, found that interesting. I thought it would be Isaiah, right, or Psalms or something like that. But it's, no, it's actually the book of Deuteronomy. And so this is going to be a good book for us to get into because one of the things that we see happens in this book is Moses here as in, in chapter 1 is retelling a story that we've read before. But as he retells it, he doesn't just give us the facts about what happened. What we also get is some insight onto what was, what was going on in people's minds um, before that happened. So um, we might see somebody do something and tell that story. Oh, I saw somebody do this. But, but there's also a place to kind of retell the story after we've talked to the people who were involved to find out what their motivation was. Why did they do what they did? What, what was going on in their minds? What was going on in their hearts? So we read the story in Exodus as Moses retells it. Those are the nuggets we're going to be able to put up on, uh, pick up on. It's not just a retelling of the story from Exodus. Now we're finding out, okay, this happened. We can read about it in Exodus. It's being repeated here. And now we're finding out why it was that it happened. That kind of a thing. So we're going to pick up this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 1, actually with verse 9. Actually, let's back up to verse 8, and we'll start there. Moses now is retelling the history of the nation of Israel. He's talking about the first generation to their children, to the second generation. And he picks up here in verse 8. He says, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. Now that phrase there in verse 8, go in and possess, probably doesn't instill in us any great excitement. 
but it would have been exciting for those who heard it because they now are being encouraged to go in and possess their own land for the very first time as a nation. They had been for 400 years in Egypt. They've been in the wilderness now since they came out. They didn't enter right into the promised land. They're on the brink of the promised land or or getting to that point anyway. And they're hearing something that would instill excitement in them. So if you think of something for yourself that that when you hear those words, it's just, it's exciting, right? It's kind of like if you were to uh, go home. How many of you have dogs? Right. And how many of you know that there's some words with your dogs that if your dog hears the word, they have a specific reaction? Right? So if, they, if your dog hears the word out, you may be saying to your wife, honey, do you want to go out Saturday night? And your dog starts going bonkers because he thinks you're taking him out. All right? And, and so think of that. We're not dogs, okay? But think of that excitement, that, that thing that might excite us. You know, for me, uh, not so much anymore, but for me it was, okay, hey, we're going to go see this uh, touristy place out in western Massachusetts. Because when I think about going out to Western Massachusetts, my mind doesn't think beautiful museums and sculpture gardens and the Norman Rockwell Museum and, and, and foliage. My mind thinks Golden Corral. And so, so when my family says to me, hey, you want to go out to Western Massachusetts? I'm like, oh, Golden Corral, Golden Canoe, you know, kind of like that, all right? And so just think about that's what it would have done for the Israelites to hear go in and possess their own land. They're going to be able to do things they've never been able to do. They've never had a house. They've been living in tents. They've never planted a garden. They've never farmed a field of their own. All of these things are meant to build excitement. And so now they're going to get going. But Moses has this realization in verse 9, before they're even able to go, that he, he needs to bring some order to this group as they begin to travel through the wilderness to get to the promised land. It can't be just like a starter's pistol going off and every person for themselves. There's a couple million of them. That would be bedlam. And so here in verse 9, Moses says this. And I spoke to you at that time, again, talking to the first, talking to the second generation about what he told their parents. I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. So I want you to notice a couple of things in there. The first thing in verse 9 is Moses realizes that he has a problem on his hands. That he alone up to this point has been the sole burden bearer for two million people. His solution is not let's start getting rid of some people. In fact, you see in there, the second thing I want you to see in there is that in in a way, in verse 11, he pronounces a blessing on the people. There's already two million of them. And he says in verse 11, where do we go here? Verse 11 just disappeared. Oh, there it is. Uh, May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are. A, A thousand times two million. I don't even know what that is, but that's a big number of people. And so he's not saying we need to get rid of people. What he's saying is, look, there's a lot of you and there's an issue here because I alone am your leader. And sometimes we think today, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, what's wrong with having a guy at the top? What's wrong with having, with having Moses and just having him be the ch- in, in charge and, and calling the shots and, and all of those things? Moses here, here isn't trying to get out of any responsibility, but he is looking for some help in a specific way. Look at it in verse 12. He mentions three things in verse 12 that he alone has been having to deal with. Verse 12 says, 
How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? That's what he said. That's why he's kind of feeling the weight of being the leader of two million people. It's not because he doesn't know what to do. It's not because he doesn't know how to do it. It's because he's feeling, look at people, when you start dealing with them on any level, have problems and burdens and complaints. Have you noticed that in your own life? I don't mean that you're a complainer and a problem and a burden person. I don't mean that. But have you noticed that, that you know, if there was a job that you could have, where you didn't ever have to deal with any people. Aren't there days when you would take that job? Right? Because of where you work and where I work and where we live in the neighborhood. I mean, if we had to never go out and we could get Peapod by Stop and Shop and just, you know, groceries delivered and just never had to go out, never had to deal with, because a lot of times jobs are fun until somebody else shows up. (laughs) And because real life is that people have burdens. Real life is that people have problems. Real life is that people have complaints. And by people, I don't just mean others. By people, I also mean us. And Moses has been serving as the, as the sole person to hear burdens and problems and complaints of two million people. I'll bet that there were days when Moses went home to his tent with his head hanging low and his shoulders drooping. Because that is a lot to, be, uh, to, to carry. That's a lot to bear. You know the way that we are, and the way that we are is, and, and sometimes we kind of joke about it, but we say things you know, like, like um, some of us are very good at saying, what's wrong, right? And some, some, some of us are like, go overboard with that. Like, hi, honey, what's wrong? Oh, I'm just saying hi, chill out, okay, it's all right, there's nothing wrong, I'm just greeting you the love of my life, you know. Well, I know there's something, no, there's nothing wrong, okay. So, but, but how often do we ask what's right? And what I mean by that is this, a lot of times when we get in contact with somebody that we need to talk to, it's to talk to them about our burdens and our problems and our complaints, and that's okay. How often, though, do we go back to that same person when something good has happened? When there's a blessing and not a burden. When there's a promise that we're clinging to and not a problem. When there's not a complaint, but there's something good happening. And and so to a much lesser extent, I'm, I'm no Moses or anything like that. But to a much lesser extent, I can understand how Moses is feeling. Because most of my meetings and most of my counseling sessions, I don't get together with people so that they can tell me what great things are happening in their lives. I get together with people because they need to share their burdens and their problems and their complaints. And that's okay. But Moses is kind of feeling like, man, that's all I'm ever hearing, and and I need some help with this. And so here we go now. Here's the solution, verse 13. It begins with this. Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. And so I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and I made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. Notice there in verse 13 that there's really three prerequisites for people who are going to be able to help Moses bear the burdens and problems and complaints of the people. It begins with people or or with men who are wise. It starts with that. 
Now, here's what we sometimes do in our minds, in our world today. We attach wisdom to age. And there's understandable why we do that. There's even, even Bible verses, I believe, that talk about uh, how somebody with silver hair or gray hair is somebody who's filled with wisdom. And there's some truth to that, if they're a godly person. But you and I probably both know people who have plenty of silver or gray hair who have been around for a long time and been living for a long time and lack wisdom immensely in their lives. So I want us to be careful about making a connection between age equals uh, wisdom every time. Not necessarily the case. Neither does experience necessarily equal wisdom. That, that's not really what it's talking about here. The, the wisdom we're talking about here isn't the wisdom of man, it's the wisdom of God. And so the, 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 um, the worst counseling sessions that I have are the ones where I fail to or forget to, or both, um, ask for prayer at the start for wisdom. Because that counseling session then becomes my wisdom. Man, I don't have wisdom about a lot of different things. And certainly some of the situations that, that are coming to me, I don't have wisdom for them, not of myself. And so that's why we, we need to pray together and say, and that's why the first prerequisite is people who are wise. We're looking for the wisdom of the Lord. James chapter 1 says that when you and I don't have wisdom, we don't have it because we don't ask for it. And sometimes we don't even think that way. Well, I really need guidance and direction on this. Well, have you asked the Lord for wisdom? Well, no. Why would I do that? Well, because James chapter 1 says if we do, he'll give it to us. And in fact, doesn't that verse say that if anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. He gives liberal wisdom. He gives plenty, bounteous wisdom. And so because we're looking for God's wisdom, these men need to be people. It has nothing to do with experience. It has, doesn't have necessarily have anything to do with their age, but they need to be wise. The second thing they need to be is understanding. Uh, there's nothing worse than going to somebody and talking to them and sharing your burden and your complaint and your problem and, and just sitting there thinking as they're speaking back to you, they don't even understand where I'm coming from. They're not really listening to me. They're not hearing me. You ever experienced that before? I certainly have too. And, and so, so the understanding piece, it's, like, it's kind of like compassion, that, that you're putting yourself in the shoes of the other person. Sometimes the best counseling sessions or the best times that I meet with people, uh, when I leave there, maybe I said 20 words. Because sometimes when you're talking to somebody, it's just a matter of them letting talk and talk and talk and talk. And by the end, they say, you know what? Thanks for solving that problem for me. I feel much better. And you're like, wow, praise the Lord. Because I only said 20 words. But they just kind of talked it through themselves. And that's all they needed. They just needed that listening, understanding ear. And that's the second prerequisite for these guys here. Wisdom, understanding. Here's the third thing in verse 13. It's knowledgeable men. They need to know what they're talking about. I would say specifically they need to know scripture. That when people are coming for, for, to you, um, when people approach you and say, I need help with this, can you help me walk through this? They're not looking for your opinion. They're not looking for your wisdom. We can start with that. They're looking for God's wisdom. Whether they realize it or not, give them God's wisdom. I happen to be one who believes, and I think we believe this as, as a church, as Calvary Chapel, that, that the word of God can speak to every situation in our lives. That, that I can talk to somebody about a, a, a problem that they're having with their neighbor and I can give them scripture that helps them with that. 
I can talk to somebody who's having a problem uh, with somebody in authority over them, and I can talk to them about that. I can talk to somebody who has a bad boss, and, and I can show them scripture about that. And it's not that I have to have been there and done that, but God's word speaks to all of that. So we're looking for God's wisdom. We're looking for people who have um, some, uh, not necessarily experience, but as it says there in verse 13, they're understanding, they're listening, and then they're knowledgeable. They know what they're talking about. They're able to come and help you by giving you scripture and by pointing you to the Lord. But I also want you to notice as the crowd now, as the two million people in verse 14 agree to this, in verse 15, when Moses takes the heads of the tribes, look what it says. I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and I made them heads over you, leaders of, here's the part now, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribe. All of these guys, whether they were leading a thousand or leading ten, needed to be wise and understanding and knowledgeable. All of them had the same character responsibility, but not all of them had the same influence. They weren't all leaders of a thousand. Some of them just led ten. They didn't all have a hundred people who came to them with their burdens and problems and, and things like that. Some of them just had fifty. Some of them, as it says there, after it says leaders of tens and captains of your tribes, as if to say there were some who just had a handful of people, maybe two or three. God doesn't look at it like there's, there's uh, success in numbers. You can have huge gargantuan churches, and we have some in this country that are meeting this morning that number in the thousands and ten thousands of people, and they're not teaching the word of God. They're not getting godly wisdom. They're not getting godly counsel. They're getting, I like to call it fluff, right? We like fluff here in New England, marshmallow fluff. But there's no substance to it. And, and that's kind of what's coming out of some pulpits this morning. God is not looking at a church and the number of people in that church saying, wow, that must be a healthy church. They have 15,000 people. And that church over there in Rainham, Calvary Chapel of Rainham, that has 70 people, 80 people, 100 people, whatever it is, that, that's not very healthy. No, that's not how he looks at it at all. He brings all of these guys in, and he just sets them over different numbers of people, all with the same responsibility, but different influence. But they're all wise, and they're all understanding, and they're all knowledgeable, and they're all going to redirect people to the Lord. So I say that, you know, in, in part for myself, right? So I've never had a dream to pastor a church of a thousand people. But there's so much pressure sometimes in Christian circles, like how many people do you have? Like pastors now, when they get together, they won't come right out and ask that because you know you're not supposed to. But when pastors often say to each other, how you doing? They don't really mean how are you doing. What they really mean is how many kids in the youth group? How many kids in the Sunday school? How many kids on a Sunday morning? How many came to the Lord in the past year? Well, that is very important. How many did you baptize? How many did you, how many did you marry? How many did you bury? It just goes on and on and on. And, and it's good for me to hear that the Lord's not like, you've got to be leading thousands because only then are you successful. No, there's a place for people today, especially, I think, in the church in New England as a whole, that, that we don't have churches of thousands in New England. Well, there's a few, but, but mostly we have churches of 50s. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes we have churches of hundreds, but most of our churches in New England, even the Bible-teaching, gospel, Christ-centered churches, are churches of 50s. And that's okay with the Lord if that's what he designed them to be. 
I think that whole last part was just for me, but thank you for listening too. <laughs> Here's what it says now in verse 16. Then I commanded your judges at that time saying, hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. So now that we have these wise, understanding, knowledgeable men, and now that they know which one is going to be leading a thousand, which one is going to be leading a hundred, which of fifty, which of ten, which just a handful of people, he has some basic overall general instructions for them. The first thing he tells them there in verse 16 is that they are to judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. Just judge right. That's all it means. Judge right. Don't make it up as you go along or anything like that. Just when the case comes before you, when you hear the problem or the burden or the complaint, just judge right. The second thing he says there in verse 17 is you shall not show partiality in judgment. So part of judging right is not playing favorites. You don't favor the bigger giver. You don't favor the family that you're closer to. You just judge right. You speak the truth. Years ago when I pastored the first church I pastored, I was an interim pastor. And I hadn't been there for very long, and I've told this story before, but it's been a while. I hadn't been there for very long until um, a woman who I think previously uh, played the role of the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz, because uh, she looked just like her, and it was kind of freaky the first time I saw her. I thought, well, do 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 um, and uh, I think that was a song. I'm not sure. And, and uh, uh, so she came to my office and she shut the door and she said, there's some people I need to tell you about. I said, okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm like 23 years old and here we go. I said, uh, okay, and, and why is that? Well, you need to know who these people are um, so that if you ever have the opportunity to uh, you know, counsel them and meet with them and there's a dispute with another family or anything like that, you need to know who these people are. I said, okay, well, well, why do I need to know who these people are? Well, because they're the biggest givers to the church. You see what she was trying to do? She was going to tell me who the biggest givers to the church were so that if their case, quote-unquote, their problem or burden or complaint came before me, I would do everything I could to kind of calm them down and side with them. And if there was another family that wasn't as big a giver, I needed to show partiality to this one. I needed to not judge right and show partiality, both opposite of what Moses is, is talking about here in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And of course, I didn't, you know, I didn't physically throw her out of my office, but I just said, you know what, I'm not interested in, not interested in that. I'm not interested in hearing anything about that. So, um, but that's the kind of thing it's talking about here. And, and if you're able to do that, look what it says in verse 17. So verse 16 is, judge righteously. Verse 17 is, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. See, here's, here's what we can say. If you judge right and don't show partiality, you do not have to be afraid of how that person you're talking to reacts to you. If you're doing what is right and saying what is right to them in God's eyes and you are not showing partiality to them, you're not playing favorites with them and favoring them, 
you don't have anything to worry about even if they don't like the counsel that you're giving because you're doing what God asks you to do. And as it tells us there in verse um, 17, you shall not be afraid in any man's presence. So that means the opposite is true. If you're showing favoritism or showing partiality, you should be afraid in man's presence. Because then if they say, you're playing favorites, and you just were, they have a valid complaint. If you're not judging righteously, and if you're just kind of making up as you go along or not using the word of God as your guide and things like that, and they say, well, you did this and you did that, they'd be right. You should be afraid of man's presence then. But if you are wise and understanding and knowledgeable and you're looking to judge righteously and you're looking to to, um, not play favorites, there are going to be times when you have to say things to people that they don't want to hear. You ever had somebody do that to you? I've had people do that to me. They've told me something that I I, I not only didn't want to hear, I didn't like them very much for saying it to me. And in my mind, that made them wrong, except when they turned out to be right. And that's a difficult thing, right? So often we have people say to us something that we don't want to hear, and they wind up being right. But that's not our initial reaction. So the one who's saying it to us, if they're judging right and not playing favorites and just giving you the truth, God's wisdom, and they're understanding you, they're compassionate with you, they're hearing where you're coming from, and they know what they're talking about, that person doesn't have to be afraid of the reaction that they get. Why not? Because look what it says in verse 17. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. Oh, that is such a relief for those times when somebody comes to us and says, well, what about this and what about that? And we say, okay, Lord, this isn't a counseling session, I know, but will you, please, will you give me some wisdom? And God gives you wisdom, and he gives you some understanding, and he gives you some compassion, and he gives you some knowledge, and you say the truth, and you speak the truth in love. You're not whapping them up the head with the scripture. And, and, and you're judging righteously, and you're not holding back because they're your friend, or they're your, uh, you know, uh, kid or, or, or whatever the case may be or your co-worker and, and, and then you don't have to worry about any of that because the judgment is God's. If you're doing all of that and they have a problem with that, their problem isn't really with you because it's not your judgment call. It's God's judgment call. Therefore, their problem would be with the Lord himself. Now, now that we have that all set and, and in order... They get to move finally in verse 19. Moses has helpers now. Verse 19 says, So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites as the Lord our God had commanded us. And then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. I want you to notice something in verse 19. That as they're walking through the wilderness, it specifically, Moses specifically says, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites as the Lord our God had commanded us. So as they started to walk through the wilderness, it was because God said, walk through the wilderness. As they began their walks with the Lord, it was because God said, walk with me. And so off they go. 
But notice there in that verse, in verse 19, that the wilderness is described with two different adjectives. There were times when they were in the wilderness when the wilderness wound up being a great wilderness. Man, they were following the Lord. They were responding to him. They were walking with him just as he said to, and great things happened. Manna fell from heaven. It was like this... this, you know, thing that was their daily sustenance, their daily bread, if you will, that fell every day. They, he sent quails. There were miracles that happened. There was water that came from a rock, just all of these things. And, and it would be so easy, it is so easy in our walks with the Lord to latch onto everything good and everything great that happens, happens because we're walking with the Lord. And there's truth to that statement. But there's a second adjective used in the same verse. Moses doesn't just say that the wilderness was great as they responded to where the Lord led them. He also says that there were times when the wilderness was terrible as they responded to the way the Lord was leading them. I mean, some, for some of us this morning, we think, well, that's an oxymoron. If they're responding to the way the Lord was leading them, how could anything be terrible? You know your life. You know your own walk with the Lord. And you know that even though you've been obedient to the Lord and doing what he's commanded you to do and following him in that walk, there are times when terrible things have happened in your life. Terrible things to your family. Terrible things to your person. Anybody experienced that before? Yeah. See the hands going up. Because that's real life. And sometimes we, we disconnect and we say, well, well, we must be doing something wrong. We must have missed the Lord. He couldn't possibly be leading this way because everything is supposed to be good and everything is supposed to be great. No, what the Bible says is that God is able to work everything for good to those who love the Lord, who are called. He's able to work everything for good. He, He doesn't say that everything is good. There are terrible things that happen. And through them all, God still brings us through. In every one of them, not just the great stuff. Lord, it's been great. You saw us through. No shocker there. Everything's been great. Lord, this week has been terrible, but guess what? You're here. The Lord saw you through. You were in the middle of it thinking we're not going to make it. You're like the disciples on the boat. We're going to sink. But the Lord saw you through. The disciples are a great example of, of both good and terrible things happening to them. You take Peter, for example who very often gets raised up and, and, and acknowledged for great statements of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He gets credit for taking that step out of the boat and beginning to walk on the water. But in Peter's early walk with the Lord, his mother-in-law got very sick. So there were great things as Peter walked with the Lord, but there were also terrible things if you consider your mother-in-law getting sick terrible, okay? Which I do, I do, by the way, okay? And, and um. And so there were good things and there were bad things. There were amazing things that the disciples did, that that God did through the disciples, is a better way to put it, right? That God did through the disciples. There were demons being cast out at times. They were leading other people to follow them. Miracles were happening in all of those things. And yet one of those original 12 disciples was stealing money all along. Great things, but also terrible things in their walks with the Lord. Man, that is real life. We give through every week we have. There's great things and there's terrible things. When something terrible happens, please don't look at it as, well, I must not be following the Lord anymore. I must have missed it. He must have turned and I must have. Listen, there's times when that's true, but he's not going to leave you hanging on that if you ask him about it. 
He's not going to like, oh, yeah, ha, I meant to tell you I was turning back there, okay? Or I know I let you go for another two years, but you missed it back here. He's not like that with us. Just because something terrible happens doesn't mean that we're somehow not being obedient to the Lord and doesn't mean that somehow he's, he's left us and is not with us. Now, that, that, that doesn't really click for the Israelites. As Moses tells them and talks to them, even as they experience it in their lives, it doesn't really click with them. And I know that because look what it says in verse 20. Moses here for the second time gives that exciting, you know, go in and possess. Actually, verse 21. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. See, so so here they are now. They're on the brink of the promised land for the first time. Remember, this is history now, okay? They're they're on the brink of the promised land for the first time, and, and now they can see it. See, before when they were hanging out at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb and and God said to have Moses tell them, go in and possess it, they weren't laying their physical eyes on the land, but now they can. Now they can see it with their own eyes. None of them has been in in there yet. The the spies have not even gone in. You understand what I'm talking about. The spies have not even gone in and brought back any kind of report. They can see it. And so Moses again says, go in and possess it. But then he gives us a little insight there at the end of verse 21. When he feels the need to say to them, do not fear or be discouraged. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I don't think I've ever been told, Don, don't be afraid when I actually haven't been afraid. Do you understand what I mean? Like, if I'm not afraid of anything, nobody's going to say to me, don't be afraid. That would be silly. If I'm not bummed out about something, if I'm not discouraged about something, I don't need somebody coming to me and saying, cheer up. You do that when I'm not down, I'm probably going to slap you or something. No, I won't do that. But, but you understand what I mean? It's silly. And so, so it, this is the insight I was talking about before. We don't find out about this in Exodus when we read about it. We find out about it here, that there must have been fear and discouragement in the hearts of the Israelites. Now, here's where, here's where my mind originally went. Well, of course, there's fear and discouragement in the hearts of the Israelites. They know there's giants in the land. They know the Anakin are there. The spies have gone and come back and have bring, brought, brought a bad report, 10 of the 12 of them, and said, no, we're not going in. But guess what? None of that's happened yet. None of that's happened yet. We're, we're going to read that if we make it that far this morning in just a few minutes. But none of that has happened at this point. Here they are on the brink of being excited, their own land, their own homes, their own farms, their own gardens, for the first time ever in their history altogether, 2 million of them, they're on the brink. Moses says, go, and nobody moves. Because they're all in fear. Well, of what? If they don't know about the giants or the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, from The Wizard of Oz. Second reference to that movie this morning, I'm not sure why. But if they don't know about the giants and everything, then what are they afraid of? Well, that's exactly what they're afraid of. They're afraid of they don't know. it's, It's not a fear of what they know, it's the fear of the unknown. You ever had that before? Yeah. It's a fear of what we don't know. It's a fear of going and possess it. That sounds exciting. Why don't you tell me what's there first? God did tell them what was there. Go into that land and possess it. He would tell them it's a land flowing with milk and honey. In a few weeks, uh, Diane and Mark Danahy, who were just in Israel, are going to share with us on a Sunday morning and kind of recap their trip and talk about it a little bit with us. Uh, Diane uh, brought back um, uh, food. (laughs) Uh, for me, 
um, from Israel, as she's a woman after my own stomach. And, uh, and she brought back uh, honey, but it was date honey. So I haven't tried it yet, Diane, but um, when I need a good date, I will be sure to. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. So she brought, back, she brought back date honey because the promised land is a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what God says. So he says, go and possess it. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. In fact, after the spies go in, all 12 spies come back, and one thing they all agree on, the land is good, just like the Lord said it would be. They all agree on that. Even the 10 spies who wind up saying, no, 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 don't go in. There's giants there. Began by saying, the land is exactly what the Lord said it would be. Think about that now. I mean, one more step and you're headed into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Go in and possess it. You've got plenty of people with you to go and no one makes a move because they're afraid of what's in there. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of not knowing what lies ahead. The problem with that is this. The Bible says that you and I are to walk by faith, not by sight. If we find out everything, if God told them, yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, when you get in there, uh, you know, you're going to be in there for two years, and then there's going to be this problem. And two weeks after you get past that problem, there's going to be another one. There's people who wouldn't go. So God just says, you know what? I just need you to trust me. Don't have, don't be afraid. Here, it's the fear of the unknown. But look what sets in right behind it. It's discouragement. He doesn't just say, do not fear. Here we're talking about the fear of the unknown, not fearing what they know, fearing what they don't know. He immediately follows up with, do not be discouraged. Because, because in our walks with the Lord, when there are times where God is saying to us, take that step of faith, go in and possess it, do it, go, take that step. We say, well, I'm kind of scared. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen when I get there. I have this fear of the unknown. We don't, we don't go forward, but we also don't move back. At least in our minds, we're not. We just kind of freeze. We, we just kind of stop in our walks with the Lord, and we're aware of it. We know about it. And when you are aware that you're not growing in your walk with the Lord the way that you know that you should be, discouragement can set in. Depression and sometimes that happens in our walks, where we're not responding to something God has called us to do because we're afraid to. We don't know what lies ahead, and so we freeze. We don't go closer to him. We don't pull back from him. We just freeze. We become, uh, I was going to say flatlined, uh, flatlined or, or stagnant or whatever word you want to use. 